Namaste. Welcome to Call and Response Podcasts with Krishnadas, where he shares meaningful stories of his life on the path of his Guru Maharaji and integrating spiritual practice into our everyday lives. Call and Response Podcasts is an offering of the Kirtanwala Foundation. The foundation is dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba, a great spiritual teacher of India. If you are interested in supporting this podcast and the work of the foundation, please visit kirtanwalafoundation.org K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org So practice, you got to do practice, I'm sorry, you just have to. With our eyes open and our hearts open. But through a practice, you're, you're, you get used to coming back from being gone. It's more like an ability to let go. Ram Nam Karne Se Sapura Ho Jate Hai. My guru used to say that to us quite often. I'm going on repeating these names. Everything is accomplished. Everything is accomplished. A very simple statement. Easy to kind of just say, oh yeah, okay. But I've been thinking about that or trying to truly believe that for 50 years or so. 40 years, 45 years. So if I truly believe that what he said, that from repeating these names, everything is accomplished, I would probably be giving more of myself to the practice as I'm doing it. But you know, we have our own karmic predicaments that we live in. Very distracted lives, very fast lives, although it's a little bit slower these days. Although we can fill it up with stuff quite easily. I remember many, many years ago before I went to India, I was up in the mountains of New Mexico with Ramdas at the Lama Foundation for about a month in the winter. It was fantastic. And every day we would spend many hours meeting together, singing, talking, meditating. And we heard about this uh, New York artist who had moved out to New Mexico and lived just down the hill, down the mountain from where Lama was. And he had been to India, and he knew how to meditate. This was big time. So a group of us went down to meet with him, to see him. And uh, we spent a couple of hours with him, talking to him. I just sat in the back of the room, listening. And uh, as we were leaving, I was the last one to go out the door. As I was about to go out the door, he grabbed my arm. And he looked at me and he said, you, you have to find out why it is you can't give yourself 100% to whatever you're doing. Oh, he nailed me to the wall. That was unbelievable. Uh, That was in 19, uh, the winter of, let's see, 69. I guess, what, 50 years ago? I can still feel his hand on my arm. You know, if we look at ourselves, we notice how difficult it is to be fully engaged in something. Not, we're not talking about watching a movie where you're fully lost well, as long as the movie's on. Or that, some kind of entertainment. But whatever you're doing, being fully engaged, not thinking about the future, not the past, not this and that, not the chatter that goes on in the brain all the time, but truly present, truly present and uh, aware. So I've been working on that a long time, or at least noticing how, how little of myself I really can give to each moment. So when it comes to chanting, or a practice that you, you do regularly, you 
you create a situation where you're training yourself to let go and come back, let go and come back, over and over again. It doesn't, it's not about up here, it's about in here. And it's not an intellectual process, it's not a learning process, it's a training process. So little by little, you, you, your, your being gets familiar with these sounds, with these names, in this case. And you begin to relax into the name. And the name, as we come to know it, has been brought into this world by a being who has fully realized the, the reality of that name, the reality of what is named and has brought that name into this world for us as a practice, as a doorway into, a, into that name, into the reality, which is our own true nature, which is our soul. The love we're looking for exists within us. It lives within us. We look outside ourselves. In the outside world, we look we look for it everywhere and we don't find it. We don't find it until we look within. But it's not like you look with your eyes within. It's not like that. It's moving more deeply into ourselves by releasing the stuff that holds us, takes us away again and again and again. That naturally moves us within. Letting go again and again. And we don't have to make this up. We don't have to manipulate ourselves. We don't have to be uh, looking for anything specific, any kind of experience. Once we know who we are, we're wide open. Everything is is here and now. Everything exists within us. We're so achievement-oriented in the West. We're in such a hurry because everything is done so quickly here. But that's not how we find ourselves. So anyhow, let's take some questions for a while. Who was Neem Karoli Baba's spiritual master and what were some of the practice they would do? We don't know. We don't know who his gurus were. We have no idea. He never spoke about it. He had some... We hear stories when he was very young, he went to this ashram, that place, he met this guy, that guy, but nobody really knows that we ever spoke to ever told us anything definitive about that. He never spoke about it. He never had pictures up of this and that, you know. Uh, he was very much believed to be a manifestation of Hanuman himself. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> you know, we use all these words, all these words that we bring we learn from India or from the spiritual path, but we don't really know what these words mean. But the lineage that he seemed to be a part of was the Ram lineage, the lineage of Ram and Hanuman. But more than that, we don't know. We know that he, um, he spent many years in a cave, in caves. There were two small caves well, one big cave in, in a town called Nibkurori, which is where he got his name. The Baba from that town, from that village. I visited there, and uh, it, was, it was a very small village, very funky village. And uh, they told us not to leave the temple, especially at night. We needed to be very careful. Apparently, there's a lot of murders in that part of the country. But that's where he, he decided to uh, 
built the cave. His, his villagers dug out a cave for him in this field. And, uh, or it was, I think, in the jungle at the time. Later on, it was cleared. And nobody knew that he was there. And he was existing on, existing on one, uh, one glass of milk a day, which uh, this village, old village lady used to bring to him. And then uh, she died. And so he was starving. Nobody knew he was there. So the story goes that he picked up his chimta, which is this metal tong, thong for, for uh, moving fire around, moving the logs around. And he threatened Hanuman. He had a little murti of Hanuman that he had in the temple. He threatened him. He said, you'll, you'll starve me, so I'll beat you. And apparently the next morning, there was milk outside the door. <laughs> Do I draw any inspiration from Eddie Vedder with my vocal style? Excuse me, Eddie Vedder's a kid. I'm 20 years older than him. <laughs> no, I mean, he's great. In fact, I think his wife said something to somebody I knew once that, that she reminded me of him, which is funny. No, I love Eddie Vedder, but I just sing. I, I don't have a vocal style as far as I know. <laughs> How do I remain focused on God when I have, have to deal with the ups and downs of life? If you have to ask that question, you don't know what God is, where God is, or, or who God is. So you can't be focused on God because you don't know. We don't know. All we have is what's in front of our faces, which is the ups and downs of life. So you have to learn to deal with those situations in the best way. And there's no God outside of yourself, your true self. And that true self is the same in every being. So if you treat other people the way you would like to be treated, you won't have any problems at all. Calm yourself down, calm your mind down little by little, and find a way to get through the day without falling on your face too many times, or creating negative karmas by getting angry at people and hurting others and hurting yourself. There's no God out there. The God that you're looking for is within us. And until you learn how to be kind to yourself in the real way, which is to give yourself a break and to learn to trust your own intuition about where to look for these uh, deeper realities. Yeah. So you need to do some practice. And you need to treat others the way you want to be treated. Towards the end of your film, One Track Heart, you use a word. Someone said you were giving something to people. I tried looking it up, but I found only something about Yeah, Maharaji had asked me to be the pujari or the priest of the, the Durga temple that he had built in Kenchi in the courtyard. And I had to distribute the charan amrit. It means the nectar of the feet, which is the water that was used to wash the feet of the goddess in the uh, pujas, in the, the rituals. Yes, it is water, but it's blessed water because it was used to, uh, in, in the ritual. So distributing that charan amrit was uh, uh, a way of distributing the blessings of the, the ritual that the other pujari did, I just watched. Charan amrit is the name. I need advice on suicide. You mean how to do it? I can't help you. I needed advice too, you know. I was going to jump in the river and kill myself. I was having a nervous breakdown in Kenchi. Right there in the temple, Maharaji was there. And uh, uh, it's a long story. It's in my book, uh, One Track, uh, not One Track, Chance of a Lifetime. It's in that book. But short story is that I was f completely flipped out and I was going to kill myself. And he called me over and he said, what are you going to do, jump in the river? And he laughed, ha, ah, 
He said, worldly people don't die. Us, worldly people, people who are attached to this world and to the ego. Worldly people don't die. Only Jesus died the real death. What? Why? Because he never thought of himself. He gave his life for his people. He never thought of himself. So the idea is that all we do is think about ourselves. And suicide is not going to change that. You go from this body to some other body. And the karmas that you have, that you can't deal with now, you won't be able to deal with later either. So the best way is to try to find a way to be in this world in a good way. Whatever you have to do to find some peace of mind, you, you should do. Counseling, therapy, uh, antidepressants, whatever works for you. And that's what you should, you should dedicate your life to finding a way to live here because you got born here for a reason. We all did. And what's in our life is what we have to deal with. And there's no way we can go to get away from that. Suicide is uh, not going to change that. You just, you're not going to have this body, but you're going to have another one, and who knows what it'll be. It might not be as good. These days I have to wear a police radio by my ear while on duty. That doesn't sound like too much fun. I have to listen and talk to others and write, etc. Any suggestions about how to not ignore the least urgent, but to include? Once again, it's all about when you're not on duty, what you do. It's about developing a practice that helps keep you in line as the day goes on. You just pay attention to what you're doing, do the best job you can do. Don't try to uh, give yourself 100% to what you're doing. Whatever it is, just do the best you can. And do that when you're doing your practice too. I'm sorry, I can't really get into that one. What's your advice on sannyasa? To dedicate one's heart and mind totally in service and surrender to God. And also, does Guru have to have a physical form? Absolutely not. Guru doesn't have a physical form. We see it that way because that's what we're attached to, physical body. The Guru never is, a, is identified with the physical body, although the guru, a Guru might take a body to help us if it's necessary for us. But Guru, God, and our true nature, the self, the soul, are not different. And, you know, these days, it seems like there's gurus on every corner. But those are not gurus. Those are not sadgurus. Those are not real gurus, true gurus. They might be teachers. They might be more advanced than us. But a guru, real guru, is something else entirely. So... You can read books about some of the real gurus. Swami Nityananda, who was Muktananda's guru. Shirdi Sai Baba. And my guru, Neem Karoli Baba. There are many. Sri Ramakrishna. Read those guys. Read how they lived. Read what they said. Read what, how they got through the day. What did they do? That's how you get a feel for what a real guru is. They don't do business. Can you get the grace of the guru even though he isn't the physical form through bhakti? Of course, absolutely. Of course. Grace is always here. We're just not paying attention. We are not paying attention. It's raining everywhere all the time, but we can't drink until we cup our hands. So practice devotion to practice, the path is what trains us to cup our hands to get the water that we need to drink. Absolutely, no question. Grace is all the time. And uh, the other part of that question is surrender. What is sannyasa? To dedicate one's heart and mind. That's wishful thinking. That's what it is. 
You know, that's wishful thinking. Good luck, you know. It's not so easy to do. You know, you'll go to some cave, you'll, you'll put on orange clothes, and you'll just have a big ego about having orange clothes and thinking you're more humble than other people. Give, it, give yourself a break. Live in this world like you are now. And don't let your neurosis fuck you up and make you think you have to go be a, a sannyasi because you're too scared to deal with your shit. There's no way you can go where your shit is not going to be right there with you. Deal with it. Find a way to live with it. Find a way to love yourself. That's sannyasa. Close initiations don't, don't, don't do anything unless you're ripe. And if you're ripe, you're ripe. You would know it. How do you know if your difficult, painful, stressful life situation is part of your dharma? Well, it's certainly your karma. And you stick with it all through ups and downs and pain and sorrow, or if it's time to make a change. Uh, have a feeling you're talking about relationships, because you can't change your life. You can change the people in it. Uh, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you, uh, if you find yourself in a situation that is uh, causing you pain and causing others pain and uh, it's just not working, you certainly can uh, find a way to make something work for you. Uh, you know, we, we grow up thinking relationships are going to make us happy. We get turned on by somebody and we, we so-called fall in love and we fall in love and we, a relationship, relationships are business. You give, you take, you give, you take. When somebody stops giving, you freak out. When, when you stop taking, they freak out. Uh, so I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to find a, a more peaceful way to be in the world. But you can't avoid, by changing the external circumstances, you can't necessarily, necessarily make yourself happy. So whatever you do, you should do with as much kindness to yourself and others that you can do. Whatever that means to you. You're the only one who knows. How does it feel to offer the chants without the large energy you're used to in the church or theater? Feels fine. It's better than robbing banks. I'm having a good time. I'm singing. And you're singing. That's good. You know, because we're attached to the physical, physical body, because we're attached to the physical body, we think we're here and other people are somewhere else. That's only one way of looking at it. In the space of the heart, in the sky of the mind, we are all within that. And when, certainly when we're doing practice, we're all tuning into that space together. And uh, it's all about doing the practice. And if I, if I was missing the energy of the people, I would notice that and then I would let it go and I wouldn't be missing it anymore. You keep coming back to the chant. Anything you think about it, you keep, you keep letting it go and coming back. So for me, it's not, I mean, it's very different on many levels, but it's also very much the same. I feel my devotion scattered over many aspects, Christ, Kali, Hanuman, and it keeps spreading over more. What are your thoughts over devotion, many aspects versus one aspect with full attention? The more the better. The more love is good. You're overthinking this. It's the love that's important, not, not the object. The object is allowing you to release that love feeling in your own heart. When the whole universe becomes objects for you to release that love feeling, then you're enlightened. So keep going. Don't stop with Christ and Kali and Hanuman. Keep going until every being you see 
turns you on. And every being doesn't turn you, and no beings turn you off. It's all good. It's all good. Much has been said about being mindful of the company you keep. Do you think it presents issues in relationship or detours one's path uh, with relationships, uh, path in relationship with them, when they have no spiritual path of their own? Maybe, but maybe not. Uh, if you're in relationship with somebody, that's the karmic imperative for the moment. That's, that's what's there in your face. How it got there is irrelevant, but it's there. So you have to be with that. And yes, the Buddha said that satsang or sangha is the most important thing in the spiritual life because our hearts are so hesitant and fearful and, and challenged that the, if we surround ourselves with spiritual friends, it can help us open up. But it can also uh, be completely negative because what we think is spiritual might not be spiritual at all. And the reasons you might move into an ashram or a, a so-called ashram or some kind of spiritual community uh, might turn out to be very negative, like you're trying to hide from yourself. So you want to go be with a group of people who turn out to be hiding from themselves. So it's all about learning to trust yourself and uh, following your heart. And yes, it's difficult if somebody doesn't understand what you're doing. But, you know, we probably don't understand it. I once got an a, a email from a friend of mine who said she and her husband were about to get divorced. And I said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. You know, why is that? And she said, well, you know, I play your music all over the house, in the bedroom, the bathroom, the kitchen, the living room. And he, he just hates it. I said, turn it off. You know, what do you need to do that for? Turn it off. So she did, and they're still happily married. As a household mother, how can I attain moksha? Be the best householder and mother that you know how to be, and sooner or later you will be enlightened. There seems to be a theme here today about trying to get away from stuff, uh, trying to and not accepting what's in your life as, as the given, what you have to deal with. You can't change things. It's not so easy to change. If you go off to a cave, you know, you bring everything with you, in your mind at least. So it's a question of seeing God in everyone and everything, even the people you don't like, even the people who, especially the people who give you a hard time. There was a, a, a wonderful lama who was going on a long journey in Tibet, and he had to take an assistant with him to help. He's a very old lama. And so he picked this guy, this, this young lama in the uh, monastery, who was the most difficult person in the world. Just really difficult. And all the other lamas said, why did you pick him? Why, how, you're going to go on this long trip with this guy? It's going to be... He said... Exactly. He's going to teach me patience. We don't want to learn. We, we don't want to transform our own negative thinking. We just want to change the outside world. But that doesn't work. It does not work. What we need to change is the way we engage with the so-called outside world and so-called other people. And that's what practice is about. You know, can you talk about how the music you make connects with your practice? I know I've noticed select melodies reoccur throughout the chants, and I've been fascinated by how they might empower each other. Really? <laughs> um, you know, if you have a good melody, you just use it to death. The music is part of the practice, it's a way of transmitting the name. 
if I sat here and went Sri Ram Jai Ram Jai Jai Ram Sri Ram Jai Ram Jai Jai Ram, I don't think many of you would hang out much, and neither would I. <coughs> so, the music is, you know, when a child is sick, you have to give it medicine. So you hide the medicine in a sweet syrup. So the music is that syrup, and the name is the medicine. The music will not cure us of our suffering. It could calm our minds down a little bit, but it's the name which has the power to transform our lives and change the painful into living reality. So it's the name that's the medicine. Years ago, you said something in a concert in Brazil that never left my mind. You were talking about Jesus and you said he lost himself in love. Can you talk a little bit more about this state of the soul? Well, you know, this happened in India uh, with Maharaji. Uh, this Canadian guy came to uh, see Maharaji for the first time. And uh, he didn't know, you know, Maharaji didn't talk about meditation and spiritual practice and stuff like that. He didn't talk about those things. He just fed you more than you could ever eat and told you to go away. So this guy comes and Maharaji says to him, what do you want? Why'd you come? And he, he thought he should give a, a spiritual answer. So he said, well, you know, could you teach me how to meditate? Ah, get out of here. Go in the back with the other crazy people, the Westerners. Go on, go, go. And as the guy's going, walking uh, into the temple or into the back of the temple, he says, just meditate like Christ. Go on, go. So he came to the back and we were all back there. Uh, Ramdas was there and others. And we were debriefing him because we debriefed everybody. What did he say? And then what did you say? And what did he say? And then he said, you know, he told me to meditate like Christ. What? What does that mean? So then later on, Maharaji came in the back to hang out with us. And uh, Ramdas said to him, Baba, you said to meditate like Christ. How did he meditate? So it seemed like Maharaji was about to answer the question, but instead he just kind of stopped. And his eyes closed. And he sat in front of us completely still. It was, it was like the earth stopped turning. It was so powerful. The vibe was so powerful. And after a couple of minutes, two tears came down his cheek, you know. And he just shook his head and he opened his eyes. He said, oh, he lost himself in love. He lost himself in love. That's how he meditated. He never died. No one understands. He lost himself in love. He's one with all beings. Oh. That wasn't uh, what I was taught about Jesus. So it was very shocking and very beautiful, very moving. Very moving. Did you ever ask Maharaji when you were sitting with him or listening to him, what is there after this life and what is the purpose of this life? Do we just come here and do what? <laughs> yes. No, we didn't talk to him about those things. He didn't, he didn't talk about those things. He didn't teach like that. When we were sitting with him, we understood what the purpose of this life is. It's to merge in love. And to live in that love all the time. And that means including everyone in it. Everyone. Uh, you can't have any shadows you can't leave any shadows behind you. You have to follow that longing you have to be free of suffering. 
and that leads you onto the path to relieve yourself of suffering. And then you start to recognize everybody's suffering. So you try to do your best to help whoever you can and learn how to be kind to yourself and others. We're here to become good human beings. There's no place else to go. This is it for now. What's the connection between Maharaji and Sombari Baba? Now, Sombari Baba was a, a, a very great Siddha who lived in the, in the hills of India. Uh, I think he left the body, um, not exactly sure when, I think maybe in the 1920s, something like that. Uh, and Maharaji, when he had his places, when, when he came to the hills in the, in the 30s and 40s and 50s, he picked certain places that he built temples. And a few of them were places where Sombari Baba had lived. He was a very great Siddha. And, uh, Sombari means Monday, and Monday is Shiva's day in India, and he would do Bandara every Monday, feed people. Uh, he was uh, a great sadhu, a great siddha. I don't know what their real connection is, but I know that Maharaji uh, uh, respected him greatly. And Kenchi, the temple in Kenchi where I lived, is built, the Hanuman temple is right in front of, uh, it wasn't even a cave, it was just under a ledge of rock where Sambhari Baba had his sacred fire, his fire, for a long time. And Maharaji built the first Hanuman temple right there in front of that, in that place. How did I know this was my path in life? Uh, I'm not sure yet, but I think it is. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> and uh, why did I go to India? I went to India because I felt pulled there. I felt tremendously pulled there. I, I wanted to go there more than anything. Uh, I just had to go. Had to go. So I went. And uh, I, in my mind, I was never coming back to America. Gave everything I had away. I sold my car, my guitar, gave my jeans away. I was gone. I had a couple of boxes of stuff in my mother's basement, but I, I, you know, I didn't think I was ever coming back. And then after two and a half years, he sent me back. That's why I'm here. Can you please kindly explain how to adopt forgiveness and move on in life? Some mistakes are blunder and are difficult to be forgiven. Yeah, forgiveness is uh, a big thing. The sting of being betrayed and being hurt is something that's very hard to let go of. Very hard. Uh, but you know, on one hand, if we really look at the people who betrayed us and hurt us, uh, we can see that their actions, just like our actions, are coming out of our own suffering. And just like we've hurt many people without wanting to, uh, it's a very similar situation for other people. They hurt people out of protecting themselves, out of all kinds of reasons. And yeah, and we take everything so personally. So it's very painful, very hard. But it's a very powerful practice trying to forgive. Trying to forgive. And, and we're so involved with me and protecting me from pain that uh, it's very hard to f forgive people who have crushed us, you know. And, uh, but that's why we do practice, to get strength to do whatever we have to do 
to uh, allow our hearts to unfold again and again and again, because that's how we get strength. It's very hard to forgive ourselves, too, truly, for hurting all the people we've hurt. Um, but I think once we can forgive ourselves a little, then we can forgive other people a little bit, too. Not easy. Not easy. <laughs> My memory of events from 50 years ago is uncanny. Do you remember everything in your life that clearly, or is there some special way that you've preserved? I can't remember my name half the time. I don't know what happened 10 minutes ago or yesterday, but things that happened with Maharaji, I can remember so much, but oh my goodness, so much is gone. You know, like for instance, uh, some years ago, about 15, 20 years ago, I was... I found my diary from India, and I opened it up, just at random, and I read in the diary, today Maharaji looked at me and this other Westerner, Balaram Das, and he said to the Indian people sitting, he said, these boys are my disciples. And he put ash in our tongue and our head, and he said, these boys are my disciples. I didn't remember that. I didn't remember that. How do you forget something like that? But I did. I had forgotten it. I forgot it for like 20 years. So there's the the funny thing of being with Maharaji, it was almost you were like oh, it, was, it was like a dream. It was a different kind of reality. Things happened, and you were aware of them, but you didn't grok them in a certain kind of way. Later, we would talk about things, and we'd go like, wow, did that happen? Oh, yeah, you know. So, but there's so much that I don't remember from, you know, spending so much time with him over in certain periods. So much would happen in, one, in a one-hour darshan, you could never, you know, there's a really nice book called Love Everyone. Parvati Marcus, who was with us in India, put this incredible book together from the diaries of a, a large number of us who were there at the time. And it's called Love Everyone, and it kind of reconstructs the, a day, the days with Maharaji, and how he played with people and interacted, and it's, quite, it's really fantastic. Love Everyone is the name of the book. So, are we to love the corrupt liars and evildoers? I try every day to practice metta meditation, and there is great resistance I encounter with this. How would Maharaji advise? Well, he would say, love everyone. <laughs> love everyone. When Ramdas was very angry at the rest of the Westerners. You know, he, he felt that we had, we, we had kind of stolen Maharaji from him in a way because we were taking up all the time and he had to share Maharaji with all of us. And of course, he, he did that by talking about him uh, when he came back from India the first time. But he was, Maharaji was working with, his, with Ram Dass's anger. So, one day Ramdas uh, walked to the temple over the hills. It was about a four-hour walk. And he was furious with the Westerners. Furious, really. Ah. And he walks into the temple and we were Maharaji was sitting on one side of the courtyard and the Westerners were sitting in a line opposite him, having they were he was feeding us, he was having us fed. So Ramdas walks into the temple and one of the Westerners gets up with a plate of food and offers it to Ramdas. And Ramdas takes it and throws it in his face, right there in front of Maharaji. Maharaji goes, Ramdas, something wrong? Come here. <laughs> so Ramdas goes over to where Maharaji is sitting and Maharaji says, What's the matter? And 
Ramdas says, I can't stand uh, impure things in people. I can't, I can't, and I can't stand the impurity in my own heart. In my heart, he looks in. He says, like this. He says, I don't see any impurity. Then he looks at Ramdas. He said, Ramdas, love everyone and tell the truth. Ramdas says, Maharaji, the truth is, I don't love everyone. <laughs> Ramdas, love everyone and tell the truth. So he understood that. Uh, he was going to have to get with the program as soon as possible. So, evildoers. It's a tough one. You know, I've told this many times, but back in the days when George W. was president, I wasn't very fond of him. Not that I knew him, but I thought he was basically a bad guy. And, uh, one night I was going through the channels on the TV and uh, I hit CNN and they were showing George W. going to meet the first group of widows from the Iraq war, right? It was at some school in Florida, public school, and he was walking down the hall towards this classroom where these women were waiting for him. And the cameras are following him and he's walking down the hall. Yeah, I'm the president. Hey, hi, Joe. Hey, Frank, how you doing? Yep, okay. Walking down the hall all full of himself. And he walked into this room. This is all live on television. He walked into this room and took one look at these women and he burst out crying like a baby. I couldn't hate him anymore. In that moment, I saw that this guy was the pawn of different political interests, different business interests. He made deals all to achieve the presidency, which is his, was his desire. And, he's cre and he started this started or whatever, got into this war where so many people were killed, all because he was the pawn of, of all the, this inner and outer uh, vested interest, his own desires for fame and the, what he owed, that he was going to have to pay for this too. There was no escape from the karmas, none, ever. And to tell you the truth, that didn't make me happy. I didn't, in my heart, I didn't want to see him suffer. But I saw that he was going to suffer because he didn't know any better. And he had no idea what he was doing in the greater scheme of things. He caused so much suffering or was the primary cause or the, the, uh, transformational cause of so much suffering and he himself would have to pay for that and it was inevitable but I didn't want to see it my heart I didn't want to see him suffer so you know I think as we learn to give ourselves a break and as we give some space to those negative places in ourselves and we see how hard it is to truly be caring and, and meet people in the best way. Then we begin to give others a break too, even the worst people. It's not something you can, it's so emotional and there's no question when you're in the emotions, there's no... Uh, Nothing you can do about it. But in the greater scheme of things, uh, everyone has to pay for the, has to experience the fruits of their own actions. So are we going to create more suffering with our own anger? Because we will have to pay for that ourselves and our own hatred. 
So it's not just thinking of others only, it's also recognizing that our own actions will be, uh, we'll have to pay for those karmas as well. So, I don't know if that's clear, but it's complicated, that's for sure. And you know, one time Maharaji was sitting uh, with uh, one of his very old Indian devotees. Of all the devotees, this man was the sweetest, sweetest. Oh, he was so sweet. And he was sitting around with Maharaji, and Maharaji pointed to him and said, he was my enemy in our last birth. What? <laughs> what? My enemy in our last birth. Enemy means enemy, right? So that's intense. So who knows who anybody is, you know? We just, all we do is judge people by our own subjective standards and subjective understanding. So it's tough, very hard to deal with, with those negative forces in a way that doesn't create more karma for us ourselves as well. Many years ago I dreamed of Maharaji repeatedly. Now I don't. What could that mean? Well, you better ask him. I don't know. Talk to him. If he, when you dream of him, it's because he came to see you. That's what they say in India. They, don't, they, don't, they believe you cannot create the shape or the form of a saint in your mind. That if you have the visitation or darshan from a, 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 a spiritual being, it's because they've come to see you. So if he came to see you, then he's still around. Give him, give him a hard time. Tell him you want to see him. Maybe you wanted to see him more at that time, and now you, you, you know, you're busy doing other things. I don't know. Talk to him. Talk to him. He's listening. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast has been brought to you by the Kirtan Mala Foundation. Krishnadas is renowned for leading Kirtan, the spiritual practice of chanting, and workshops around the world. For more information about him, including upcoming events, please visit krishnadas.com. K-R-I-S-H-N-A-D-A-S.com. We also invite you to visit kirtanwalafoundation.org. K-I-R-T-A-N-W-A-L-L-A-H foundation.org Here you will find more offerings dedicated to spreading the teachings of Neem Karoli Baba. Love everyone, serve everyone. Remember God. Ram Ram.